Joel C. Rosenberg is a New York Times bestselling author. He's written 15 novels and four nonfiction books with 5 million copies in print. Among his readers and fans, George W. Bush, Mike Pence, and Mike Pompeo. He also has a second vocation as what you might call a religious political activist. And he has a new book based on that work. It's titled Enemies and Allies. Joel is here with us today to help me ask questions and perhaps provide a bit of controversy. FDD senior fellow, Well Mark Correct, a former Middle East specialist at the CIA's Directorate of Operations. I'm Cliff May. Nice to have you with us too, here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. So, Joel, look, just about every ex-reporter like me and every ex-spy like Ruel says to himself and maybe to his wife or his girlfriend or both, Okay, one day I'm going to write a great American novel or a blockbuster thriller, and I'm going to make a fortune and I'm going to become a huge celebrity. So you've actually done it. How? Well, Cliff, it's great to see you and Rob. Great to see you. And uh, we're, uh, but I, 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 you know, I should say the way I got into writing novels is that I am a failed political consultant. Okay. <laughs> Well, there's, I, there's a lot of those who don't actually make it as great uh, novels. I a 100% track record of failure. I helped Steve Forbes lose two presidential campaigns and about $70 million of his daughter's inheritance money. Chump change. Um, yeah, and, and, and others. But so after almost 10 years of helping people go nowhere, uh, including very briefly, just for a few months, yeah. working, uh, uh, then former prime minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, on his comeback campaign team, uh, that was in the fall of 2000. He didn't come back for nine more years. So that was like <laughs> it. I was like, okay, this is not going well. And so I got out of it and I thought, I'm one of those, I'm like one of the few Jewish people born and raised in the United States, uh, though we live in Israel now and I'm an evangelical, but that I didn't get the financial gene. Okay. I, like I'm not your stockbroker, I'm not your hedge fund manager, I'm not your CPA. And I didn't get any of the other good. Jewish skill sets. Uh, I'm not your doctor. I'm not your lawyer. I don't run a major motion picture company. You know, like the good stuff all got taken. And I, I was like, I'm still clearly a little bit bitter, but I, so I, I basically had, was reduced to making things up for a living. And who knew now when I was research director for Rush Limbaugh, all my, all my liberal friends thought I was making things up for a living, but that's, that was different. And I wasn't, but anyway, yeah. So I wrote my first political thriller in, um, I started in January of 01 and I'd never done it before. And I, and the first page is put you inside the cockpit of a jet plane hijacked by radical Islamist terrorists coming in on a kamikaze attack mission 
into an American city. That was almost nine months before September 11th. That's how this novel, The Last Jihad, opened. And the arc led to my fictional American president saying, hey, we got to take out all these terror camps in the Middle East, but we've got to remove Saddam Hussein from power because of his connection of terrorism, weapons, and mass destruction. And The Last Jihad released in November of 2002, and it was still, what, five, six months till we actually went to war. But the, the whole global debate, the whole national debate was in full swing, you know, Colin Powell at the UN. And it was a big deal. And, and whether your listeners think that was a good or bad thing, imagine yourself a novelist in January 1941 writing about, you know, just what if the Japanese hit us somewhere in the Pacific and we dropped two atomic bombs? Like, and then this thing starts to unfold and you're like, oh, crap. Like, that's not I wasn't I'm not predicting this. I'm just writing a thriller. Well, I just want to emphasize something here. I want everybody to understand just just before 9-11, uh, Bernard Lewis, who I knew and Ruel is sort of a Bernard Lewis protege. And for those who don't know, you should. He's the, the great historian of the Middle East and of Islam. He wrote What Went Wrong, which which was sort of they released fresh the day before. Right. <laughs> and you yeah. wrote The Last Jihad prior to the 9-11 attacks. That's, that's, that's correct. So you, you, you sort of, in your imagination, what was about to happen was happening. I, mean, I, I got that right. Yeah, and, and, and in, part, in part, I was inspired by Netanyahu, uh, hmm. who had written in probably his most famous book, uh, A Place Among the Nations, uh, back in the early 90s, that, you know, if the American leadership doesn't understand that radical Islamism is a threat. Don't think Israel's the only, you know, we're on the front lines, but they're coming for you if you don't take it seriously. Mm. And I, I took that thought, I matched it with, uh, you know, my, I was a fan of Tom Clancy in his day, and he'd written a book that I didn't particularly love, but it was called The Some, uh, no, Dead of Honor, in which a Japanese uh, airline pilot who's like the son or grandson of, you know, people from World War II is so mad at the United States for various reasons, he decides to fly his commercial 747 into the Capitol. Now, I didn't think that that was realistic, that because it takes an, it either takes re- deep religious conviction or deep or beyond, I mean, beyond political conviction. You have to have some ideology that's going to drive you to blow yourself up or fly a plane into a city. And I didn't believe there are kamikazes left in the Japanese society. And I asked, well, who, you know, I matched these two completely disconnected thoughts. And I said, who might come after us and how might they do it? And it led me to radical Islamism. And let me bring Ruel in on this, with this question. So Joel was imagining this possibility over at the CIA, where they're supposed to sort of think about these things, too, not necessarily for novelistic purposes. Was there anybody saying, you know... The jihadis are using car bombs. They're using bombs that are in boats. And they're maybe what if they used a plane and they hijacked it and used it as a is anybody at the CIA talking about that, thinking about that? I mean, I think the specific scenario, no, uh, they weren't. Uh, I mean, uh, they hadn't. I mean, the American government and various parts of the American government had anticipated various scenarios, but there's a difference of anticipating the scenario and then actually acting upon that. I mean, if you go back 
the Navy had practiced drills, for example, and experimented on using different type of weaponry to stop small boats loaded with plastic explosives from uh, ramming a U.S. naval vessel. They came up with the conclusion that the best weapon available are 50 caliber machines. Which they didn't use in 2000 uh, when the... Which they didn't actually have operational on the USS Cole, but the Navy had thought yeah, of it. Which was blown... It's US, for people to remember, USS Cole was blown up by a small boat off the coast of Yemen uh, by jihadis. They they rammed their boat full of explosives into the USS Cole. Killed about After 17... After they attempted to actually do it against the USS Sullivan's, mm. except uh, they, sank. <laughs> they, 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 they sank their own skiff. Yeah. Uh, and it shows you how little money Al-Qaeda had because they actually uh, went through the trouble to raise the skiff out of the water uh, and no one noticed uh, and take the engine and dry the engine out Uh and they actually learned from their mistakes and realizes they had to shape a charge. They couldn't just stick it in a boat. But so the the there are several problems, I think, with the American government consistency consistently. And certainly with the CIA, its imagination is is sort of in the past tense. So it has a very, very difficult time uh, to anticipate and act uh, it's more or less, as all American government agencies are, they're institutions of conventional wisdom. Mm -hmm. I could go on on that um, with the well, CDC you know, and then it, but yeah, go ahead. Joel, I'm sorry. On that, um, you know, Ruel, you're, you're talking about the, the point of imagination. And, you know, if you think of the 9-11 Commission report, if there's one line that anybody who's ever read it really remembers as a, as a line it's um, that, that the, the attacks of 9-11 were not so much a failure of intelligence, but a failure of imagination. And I think if you, you know, when you go through the whole 800 pages, whatever, you, you realize there was a lot of a lot of details that were known. And obviously, you know, the FBI couldn't talk to the CIA and there were all kinds of systemic institutional problems. But ultimately, you, you know, you heard President George W. Bush or Condoleezza Rice and others say, who could have imagined this happening? Like it was just, it's beyond, because for most Americans it was beyond, but that is, that was, that was the main failure is because if you, if you connected all those dots about, and I don't mean the specific moment, the specific day, but the concept, how, how would you, how would a, a poor cave dwelling people? <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's the also, most damaged. It's it's imagination and courage. I mean, I I, I wrote a piece uh, in the Wall Street Journal. I can't remember if I did it. That was back in my pseudonym days. Uh, and I suggested what we should do immediately. I think it was 1998. What we should do immediately is assassinate Osama bin Laden. And uh, it caused a bit of a shockwave. I mean, uh, uh you know, there are a lot of people that you think today are fairly hawkish who were actually uncomfortable with that idea that the U.S. government would go out and do that. So it 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 gives you a, a mindset. I mean, the agency, for example, you know, it didn't send in an officer to see Ahmad Shah Massoud until 2000. And the gentleman who I like, he's a nice guy. Uh, came in for just one day because the agency was uncomfortable with keeping an officer there overnight. Uh, and, uh, you know, I remember talking to Masood about it and he laughed. He just said, you know, um, 
let me see. He said, the Americans uh, who are the primary target of Al-Qaeda come to see me for a day and won't give me any weapons. The Iranians uh, who are not the primary target of Al-Qaeda give me weapons. I mean, do you see anything? And, and just for people who don't, I, I want to make sure they understand. Masoud was the head of the Northern Alliance, which was an Afghan militia that was opposed to Al-Qaeda. In other words, to be friendly to us. I just want to make sure no, everyone knows who, who we're talking about. He was killed. By, and he was killed he was by Al-Qaeda. Killed. Yeah, posing. Al- they were posing as journalists, by the way. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the, the, taking him out was right, was the precursor to the actual attacks. Yes, right, right before, like, what, the day before 9-11, they took him out, and he would have been our best ally up there. And there's still a remnant of the Northern Alliance, but they were pretty much beaten by the Taliban in the, after the, uh, the the chaotic and really shameful uh, sudden with, uh, retreat and capitulation of, the, of this administration, perhaps the last administration. Okay, all right. I want, you know, you, Joel, you teased your, your background, but it's more interesting, and, and I it just... I, I'm, I'm familiar with your story, but listeners may not be. So talk a little bit about your personal as well as professional evolution, if, you're, if, if I may. Uh, evolution, <laughs> well, that's certainly yeah. true. I, so, so I'm Jewish on my father's side. That's the Rosenberg portion of the program. Uh, that's yeah. a family of Orthodox Jews that escaped out of Minsk, Belarus, uh, was then, um, you know, um, uh, Imperial Russia back in 1906, 1907, when our family began leaving in batches. Um, and by God's grace, they didn't settle in Poland or somewhere in Central Europe, as many Russian Jews fleeing the pogroms did. They somehow continued to move across the continent of Europe, got on a steamship, got to the United States, and like any good Jewish family, set up shop in Brooklyn. That's how it's done. And uh, and, and my dad's a first-generation American um, he says his first language was Yiddish. I'm sorry, his first language was cursing, second <laughs> language Yiddish, and then the third language was English. And so that, that's so that's my dad's side. My mom's side is daughters of the American Revolution, English Methodist wasp. If there was ever an Annie Hall marriage in the United States, it was um, uh, my parents, agnostics in the si- mid '60s when they met and married, and, and had they got married in '65, had me in '67. It's a whole longer story, but they were really they didn't care about religion, but they were curious about God. They didn't. And, and, and in time, they, you know, they read the Quran. They read the Bhagavad Gita. They tried to read the Bible. But ultimately, they did both become evangelical followers of Jesus as Messiah, as God. And that was a big deal for my mom to sort of come back to her roots. But it was a it was, you know, tectonic for my agnostic Orthodox Jewish father, you know, who thought he was the first Jew since the Apostle Paul to believe this. He, you know, he did never heard of a Jewish person that believed in Jesus as Messiah, had never met one. 1973, there weren't that many. There's actually a study that came out a few years ago. There's almost, there's about 900,000 evangelicals in the United States today that have Jewish parents or grandparents. It's, it's, hmm. but that's, you know, that's not really the focus of your podcast, but that's, that's the world I grew up in, upstate New York, um, uh, born in Syracuse, grew up just outside of Rochester, New York, went to film school at Syracuse, came to Israel for the first time in, the, in August of 1987 to do a semester abroad and fell in love with Israel. Was not raised in a particularly Zionist home. Not, you know, a lot of evangelicals are. They, they, they raise their kids to really love and understand God's plan and heart for, for Israel. But 
My parents didn't really talk about it. They didn't hate Israel, but because my father had some issues with his Jewish past, um, it just wasn't a thing. But it was. But I got fascinated, and um, and the Intifada broke out. So anyway, uh, you know, I just knew this. There was something really intriguing about Israel and this region. I wanted to learn more, and I started coming back, and um, yeah, and and so when my you know when my political career went nowhere, um, I I thought you know people say that if you're going to write a novel. Right. The advice to young people is write what, you know, I don't buy that because, you know, if I mean, I just, you know, how would you know if you were J.R.R. Tolkien and somebody told you that you would like, I don't know, Middle Earth. I, you know, where's the Shire? There is no Shire. And for me, I've never killed anyone. I haven't been in the CIA. I haven't, you know. So, no, I, I think the advice is right where you live in your head. And. You know, that's where Tolkien lived in his head is a world that didn't exist. So he wrote it down. And I live. I should take I should take this moment just to uh, say it, that the second R in J.R.R. Tolkien is mm, Ruel. That's is it really just. A, yes. Yeah. Yes, it is. Okay, sorry. Were you named after him? No. All right. No, all right. No, we'll, we'll, we'll leave that for later. Go ahead. Joe. <laughs> so I just thought I'm fascinated. You know, OK, so when we got a few months on the Netanyahu team, he, you know, we haven't, we're not, we have no relationship. It's not like I, you know, I was in that inner circle or anything, but, but I, I met people over the, over the time of 10 years in Washington. And I thought, I think I could write a political thriller that, you know, thrillers and movies bother me if they don't have, you know, if they pick a, a helicopter that lands on the White House lawn and it's not a Sikorsky, you know, <laughs> seeking, like, how hard is that? You're Hollywood, just do it. Like, so there's a lot of things that can throw you out of a story. And the one thing, maybe, maybe the only thing that I picked up was a sense of, you know, how Washington works, what it's like to be in a motorcade, what it's like to do all these things. And so at least that gave the feeling. But ultimately, for a thriller, you need a, a what if premise. What if this horrible thing happened? It has to be, it has to be plausible, but it has to be crazy. Because if it's normal, like, why would you write a novel about it? But it has to be big enough that makes you go, wow, that'd be, that'd be horrible if that happened. And if you've got that, you have the makings, the potential of writing a political thriller that might sell more than your mother finding it in a bookstore within 100 miles of her house. And uh, who knew that, you know, that last she had wound up number one on Amazon, 11 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. I was on 160 radio, TV shows, and other interviews in less than 60 days, suddenly I had a career. And, you know, I thought, I just made that up. And I'll just add that the concept of writing a novel is insanely, it's insane. The idea that you're going to persuade someone to spend $28 and several days of their life to read something that's completely made up. Of course, I'm Jewish. I wouldn't pay $28. I don't pay retail, but I <laughs> think God bless the Gentiles that do. And I, but you know, that's why the cursor is just sort of, that's why the word curse is right <laughs> in the word cursor because it's just daring you. Go ahead. You're going to fill this up with a hundred thousand words. How, how, how? So 15 novels in, I'm, I'm learning and the people that read them, I'm, I'm intrigued. Uh, yeah. And, and most of your, your, your books take place 
in the Middle East. I'm thinking of the Persian Gamble, the Tehran Initiative, the Jerusalem Assassin, the Beirut Protocol. Although, you, I mean, it's not like you can say, you know, I think I'm going to write the Tehran Initiative. I think I'll go spend the summer in Tehran. That would be fun. I mean, you can't, there's certain things you can't, you know, even the Beirut Protocol, I can see problems. Re- research is is the key. And yeah. getting to know as many Iranian you know, uh, expats, dissidents, whatever is, is great. I've done that. Uh, Google earth, honestly, is, uh, is a writer's dream. Yeah. Astonishing. Uh, so that you can zoom in on the very street in Tehran that you want a car chase on. Mm. And, you know, not that anyone would know or care, but, but some people know, and some people care. And if you're going to take, uh, you know, a sharp turn in front of this mosque next to this, you can see it. You can actually go down the street. And that's been, you know, that's been, I don't know how people did it back in the day where you had to go to the Library of Congress and look in the reader's periodical guide to whatever, like this, you know, in this age. But I also try to go wherever I can. I wrote a novel called The Ezekiel Option years ago. And I told my father, who'd never been to Russia, hmm. I had been to the Soviet Union back in the day, but I said, Dad, you want to go back to the old country and meet some fascists? <laughs> sure. And so we went and we mapped out uh, car chases and we, yeah. you know, we met with uh, Vladimir Zhirinovsky's uh, chief advisor, you know, like crazy stuff. Um, but, it, you know, it added, I think, and I, I wrote a novel called The Kremlin Conspiracy also uh, about a Russian dictator planning to attack either Ukraine or the Baltics. What a crazy idea. And, it's, yeah, it's plausible. And it's plausible. Uh, close to home. You know. <laughs> While we're on the so you moved to Israel, you took Israeli citizen. You're a dual American Israeli citizen. Yeah, it and means I, I get to vote twice. Clay. You get to vote. Twice. Uh, that's that's fun. Like living in Chicago. But I also want you to tell us a little bit about your life in Israel and the lives of other Christians. Um, and I'm because I'm not sure people first of all know this that there are there are multiple Christian communities in Israel, and Israel is the only country only country in the Middle East where those communities are growing, where they're free, all of that. And this is particularly relevant right now because as we're having this conversation, um, Amnesty International, which used to be a, a, an admirable organization devoted to freeing political prisoners, has written what it calls a report. It is a, I would say, fiercely anti-Semitic indictment of Israel for the crime of apartheid, apartheid being what you had in South Africa uh, under the racial white supremacist regime. Um, And and apartheid means separateness or segregation. Um, You tell me the idea that anybody could walk down a street in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv and see black Jews from Ethiopia, brown Jews from India, um, Jews from all over the Middle East, communities that had been expelled from other countries in the Middle East, and 20% of its population, Arab, Muslim, Druze, Christian, Circassian, um, and they're in the same hospitals, the same universities, uh, the same beaches. The idea that this is an apartheid society, I think, is just a, a slander of a, a, a really a shameful anti-Semitic slander. But you tell me what you think, because that's why I have you here. <laughs> well, that is a very wonderful, wonderfully put a Sean Hannity question. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, Sean, I agree with you. But it's true. I mean, I like I know I, I love Sean, but I, you know, Sean often asks the question, like, don't you agree with it? Yes, I do. So 
I would say, yeah, I, I, uh, you you just listed a number of the, the, the points that, you know, for example, we currently in Israel have um, an Arab Christian sitting on our Supreme Court. Now, he's getting ready to retire this year, but there's been, I think, 83 uh, Israeli Arab citizens who have served in the Knesset, in our parliament, over the, since 1949. One's in the ruling coalition right now. He's in the, the Islamist Ram Arab List Party. He's in the coalition. He's made it possible. Without him, you wouldn't have them as this, this ruling coalition. It doesn't mean that there isn't racism, and it doesn't mean that there isn't tension, and there isn't... Of course, and everywhere. Better. Absolutely. But but apartheid is, is slander. It, it, there's no other way to put it, because I would say, you know, not only are 20% of Israeli citizens. I mean, passport holding, you can, you have the right to vote, you can start a party, you can go to a mosque, you, whatever, just like any other country, except uh, look at the Palestinian Authority. Are there any Jews that are citizens of the Palestinian Authority? No. Zero. How about Lebanon? Zero. How about no. Syria? Zero. How about Jordan? Zero. zero. Egypt, Jordan. In, in Egypt, there are now 15 Jewish people. So not zero, but it's 100 million people. There's 17. I said, you mean 70,000? There's 16 or 17, but maybe it's 15. But the point is, if, if you're going to talk, if you're going to use the concept of apartheid, you have to say, are Jews allowed to live and vote and start a party and build, you know, in your country? And the answer is no, in almost every Arab country. So, no, it, it's a slander and, and, and it's... Um, Look, I just see it as demonic. I mean, it's just one of these things that is just like seriously, like, uh, and, and you know, ha- and has Amnesty written this about China? No. I mean, this would be a good week to <laughs> release the report that says you, as of March first, no Chinese person is allowed to post anything on the internet or social media about Jesus, about the Bible, about faith. There's a million Uyghurs in concentration camps. They're facing genocide. It's not just. Mike Pompeo that says it's genocide. It's Joe Biden who says it's genocide. And like, the British government and the French government. Exactly. Why Why exactly are the Olympics being held there? Why is anybody watching? And why isn't Amnesty writing that report when it's when that would be true, uh, you know, of the crimes of, against humanity? I, I might just give a little historical footnote here. In uh, 1987, I was at a dinner party overseas. Everybody attending that dinner party was in the clandestine service. Uh, I would have loved to be at that uh, party. A, 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 woman, uh, a woman at that dinner party who'd served in Israel just sort of offhandedly said she was talking about something else. She, she referred to Israel as an apartheid state. Uh, everyone at that dinner party, with the exception of myself, um, uh, assented to that view. Uh, that is, there's a great deal of sympathy. There was, and I'm sure it's even more profound today. There was a great deal of sympathy for that view throughout the Near Eastern Division of the Clandestine Service. So I suggest that uh, Amnesty International is more towards the, probably more towards the mainstream here than it is towards the extreme. But it's a, what I would say is that, that this is a just 
the newest variant of the virus of anti-Semitism. I mean, Rabbi Lord Sachs, uh, famous and philosopher, writer, and uh, rabbi in, in, in Britain, said that you know in the in the 19th century they hated us for our religion, in the 20th century they hated us for our race, in the 21st century they hate us for our nation state. That's what, so. This is just anti-Semitism in a, in a new bottle. And just to close this, I or just I, I, somebody might say, well, what about the Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank? Well, the Israelis withdrew from Gaza in 2005. Gaza is not part of Israel. So it is separate, but a Jew dare not go into from Israel, go into Gaza. On the other hand, Gazans do come to Israel during times of calm, either to work or for medical treatment unavailable elsewhere. And as for the West Bank, um, that's under the that's governed by the Palestinian Authority under the Oslo Accords that were signed by the U.S. and by the Palestinian Authority. And there is an Israeli military presence there. It does two things. It keeps terrorists from coming into Israel. It also preserves the Palestinian Authority, as even members of the Palestinian Authority have admitted, because otherwise the likelihood is that Hamas would defeat them and take over as they defeated them and take, took over but and by violent means, not by not 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 just you know at the ballot box uh, in Gaza. So th- yes, there is some separation there, but there's also I've been in, in in the West Bank where you can find supermarkets run by Israelis and what's called occupied territories, and the people staffing it are Palestinians and both Jews and and Palestinians come in and and buy their produce and buy their cereal and their juice in the same grocery store. It's still not the same thing. So I just wanted to get that in because it's a controversy right now uh, and, in, and in a furious one. By the time this is released, I'll have a, a column on, on this. All right. Um, I'll leave it unless there's other things you want to say. You can see I'm exercised about this. Your newest book, Enemies and Allies. I think it's your newest book. Though. Every time I turn around, you've got another new book. Yes, so far that's the newest, yeah. <laughs> that's the newest yeah. book. Uh, just tell us a little bit about how you came to write it and why, why you decided to Put to put together your your adventures and your and your work politically and your travels into into the into this book. Sure, happy to. Um, so, enemies and allies is a nonfiction book. Just to be clear, right? Everything, all these other fifteen have been been fictional, but this is nonfiction, and it released in early September of of twenty twenty one, uh, designed to mark the twentieth anniversary of the nine eleven attacks, and to ask. Okay, 20 years later, where are we in our battle uh, with radical Islamism? Who are our enemies today? And who are our allies? A lot has changed in 20 years. And, uh, you know, I think that would be an interesting premise of a book anyway. But what it makes Enemies and Allies unique is that uh, I, it's the only book uh, that actually the author has gone and sat with and spent hours and hours and hours and hours with almost every major leader in the Middle East on at least that, you know, okay, not in Iran, right? I mean, I'm talking about uh, Israel and the, and the moderate Sunni Arab world. Uh, there, there, there are several books, for example, about uh, Saudi crown prince Mohammed bin Salman, uh, a New York Times uh, regional correspondent, uh, wrote an entire biography on him on MBS but had never met MBS and, and, and did not have the opportunity to interview him, much less on the record. Um, uh, two Wall Street Journal reporters uh, wrote uh, an entire biography about MBS, uh, never met him and never 
uh, interviewed him. I'm not saying that's bad necessarily. Uh, you know, also, uh, you know, probably a, uh, you probably disagree with him, but a, a colleague, at least in, in, in Washington, Bruce Rydell, wrote a really actually very interesting book, of, uh, Kings and Presidents, about the, the U.S.-Saudi relationship over the year. He had a section at the end about uh, MBS. But of course, he had never, and he was a former CIA uh, analyst, uh, never met him and never interviewed him. He is, MBS is the most controversial leader in the Middle East among our allies. And he, and, and love him or hate him, we need to understand him. And, uh, and this is, this is, this is the only book where I sit down with him and get him on the record on, on all the tough issues, including Khashoggi. Uh, this is true of King Abdullah. It's true of President El Sisi. It's true of uh, Mohammed bin Zayed, the crown prince of Abu Dhabi. Um, he told me two years before the Abraham Accords were announced, when I led a delegation of evangelical leaders to the UAE at his request, first ever uh, evangelical delegation, he told us uh, that he was going to make peace with Israel, that he had thought it through, that he was ready. He explained why he was going to do it, and he was looking for the right moment. Now, unfortunately, at the time, that was an off-the-record two-hour conversation. We had all the notes from it, but but we kept our promise, but we came out of that palace with a bombshell. Oh, that's probably the wrong term for the region, but <laughs> like a big story. <laughs> and we couldn't say it and we didn't say it. But this story, this book now tells the story. The back the, until, well, as you and I record this, until tomorrow, <laughs> until February 8th, when uh, Ambassador David Friedman's book, uh, Sledgehammer, releases, it literally has been the only book in English uh, to tell the story. And it was certainly the first. So, it, 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 it you, what you're hearing is not just my analysis, though it's in there. You're, what I'm asking these leaders is, how do you see the region changing? Why are you drawing close to Israel? What's happening? You guys were all against Israel for so long, and you're changing. You, you, you know, MBS said to me on the record that Mohammed, I'm sorry, that the supreme leader of Iran is the new Hitler. That's not normal talk for a Saudi leader. It sounds more like you're in a Likudnik faction meeting in the Knesset rather than in, in Riyadh or Jeddah. So, is so it that's your, what makes it interesting, I think. Is it your view that these Arab, Sunni Arab leaders are moving close to Israel only because they see the common threat represented by the Islamic Republic of Iran? Or do they also recognize that, look, the Jews are one of the indigenous peoples of the Middle East, um, we have a lot of sympathy for the Palestinians, but the Palestinians have been unwilling to compromise and come and, and make peace with the Israelis. It's time we just did it and, and, and led the way. What kind of mixture is it of these things in your view? Right. So the answer to that question is yes. <laughs> and by that, I mean, what we're watching is a tectonic shift in, in Arab thinking. It's certainly happening in the palaces, but it's also happening on the street. Now, it's not, you know, I would say the palaces are, are well ahead of the street, but, but the street is moving in the same direction in most places, not all. Um, and what I mean by that is it, partly this is generational, right? If you look at uh, MBS, for example, just, you know, right, they haven't normalized with Israel yet, but MBS is what, 37 now? 70% of the Saudi population is under the age of 37. And they don't remember 1948, 1956, 1967, 
they, they've read about these things in their textbooks, textbooks which are changing, but are not all the way there yet, but are changing. I write about that in the book. But, but they don't see it as we hate the Jews and we hate Israel. Okay. In fact, a, a, a story came out um, late last year. We, we covered it on one of the news uh, sites that I run here in the region, um, all Israel news and all Arab news. 79% of Saudis, 79% now say they are ready for normalization under certain circumstances with Israel. Now, that's coming from the 70% mostly. The 30% is the challenge for MBS because that is... I don't want to say deep state. I, I would say, but this is the this is the establishment class. This is the business class, the clerical class, the government class. This is the wealthy. They, they, they do, and they're older, and they do remember, and they're trying to weigh: is that a good idea? Is it a bad idea? But what are we watching? Right? I was reporting this book all before, mostly before uh, the Abraham Accords. I tell the story of the Abraham Accords. I, it's all in there. But what I mean is, my main meetings with all these leaders. What's happening prior? But look what's happening. There's a conversation in the region. So I'm saying there's a generational change. There's a re- there's a realization that um, Israel is in a fascinating and impressive country. Uh, high tech, uh, high growth, um, dynamic, um, and militarily the regional superpower. That's impressive to these Arab leaders and to the people, mostly to the leaders. Um, and then there's the Iran threat. That has it, it, that is forcing Arab leaders to fundamentally reevaluate who is their friend and who is their foe. And when they're looking at the Trump administration, who I think in most ways had a very good foreign policy in the Middle East and a successful one, but still Trump's instinct was mostly to leave and, and we'll equip you guys and we'll strengthen you guys, but we're leaving and we're not going to do this work for you. You guys go do it together. That combined with Biden, who's pulling Patriot missile batteries out of Saudi at a time when miss, Iranian-built missiles are coming in from the Houthis and Yemen, drones, th- there was a real, and of course, the, 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 the catastrophic surrender to the Taliban in a country that we'd already won, messy, but we'd won it. This is accelerating a sense among Sunni Arab leaders, the Americans are leaving. So if we have to go to war with Iran and we don't want to, and we're very vulnerable, if we have to, and can we depend on the Biden administration? No. Could we, what about the future? The future too, it's impossible to read. Could we trust Israel? And they're concluding one by one, yes. And so are they the, is Israel a problem in the region, as we've been saying for 100 years, 70 years, five years? What? Or are they part of the solution in the region? And then how do we deal with the Palestinians? Well, they're the ones that keep saying no to everything. So it's given freedom. If, if, if Sadat could go before the Palestinians and make peace and King Hussein could do it, the others are like, I, I've got too many issues to deal with right now. I want tourism. I want trade. I want technology. And that's Israel. And I want missile defense and I want F-35s. And I like I can't wait for the Palestinians if they're going to say no for 75 years. We love them. We'll try to help them. But we're not waiting anymore. And that is I know that's not a soundbite answer, but that set of dynamics is so interesting. 
And most Americans have been so internally focused over the last several years because of COVID and all the internal race riots and political division, they're not noticing that there are sweeping changes going on in the region, both for good, but also uh, there's some very dangerous, evil things going on as well. And we want to, I just want to clarify, when we talk about the Palestinians in this context, we're talking about the Palestinian Authority, because for the Either most part, right. the Sunni, the, these, the pragmatic Sunni countries we're talking about, they view Hamas, um, they, they understand that Hamas is A, instructed and funded by Tehran, uh, even though Hamas is Sunni, and they also understand that Hamas is Muslim Brotherhood, and these countries do not like at this point in history the Muslim Brotherhood. They see the Muslim Brotherhood also as a threat to them, whether in uh, Jordan, where it's permitted but kept un- under uh, wraps, and certainly the Saudis and the Bahrainis and the uh, and the Emiratis. So Egyptians, are for sure, at this, at this point, yeah. meetings with El Sisi and. And one of those was three hours on the record. It's amazing. I mean, of course, for the guy who who rescued 100 million Egyptians from the reign of terror of the Muslim Brotherhood, it's fascinating to just sit with him and talk to him about it. He feels like a pariah. He did under the Obama administration, and he does under the Biden administration. Trump was the first one, and so far the only, to really embrace him and say, look, we got issues, and we're going to have to work through them. But you did the right thing to rescue Egypt. And we want a close relationship. And yes, the Muslim Brotherhood is a danger. Chapter two of your book is the rise of the Russian-Iranian axis. And it's interesting to me for a couple of reasons. One, because Ruel is an old Iran hand, and two, because I'm an old Russia hand. And where, as we're recording this, you've got Putin in China making very clear something that I think we've seen at FDD for some time, which is that there is an axis forming between China and Russia, but also including other authoritarians, notably the Islamic Republic of Iran, uh, notably Kim Jong-un of, of North Korea. Um, just uh, maybe just give us a few minutes on this Russian-Iranian axis that you, that, that, that you perceive and that you thought important enough to make your second chapter. Yeah. Well, in the enemy section, uh, Iran is is the most immediate and severe threat to Israel. There's no question about that. But what makes Israel or Iran especially dangerous more of late is that having been thwarted from obtaining nuclear weapons for, you know, 20 some years, they are turning more and more to uh, the world's nuclear powers that hate the United States, certainly Russia, China, North Korea. Uh, I would. Uh, my argument is that they are also turning towards Turkey, and Turkey is turning towards them. That's a much more complicated and nuanced set of relationships. But 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 basically, Turkey is turning to the dark side. The key to me is understanding at the moment Vladimir Putin. And I don't think Russia. It. I don't think Russia has a national interest in Iran, <laughs> um, but Putin thinks he does. And why does Putin think he does? Uh, I think Putin is, um, look, I think he's a combination of two types of people, and I describe in the book. On the one hand, I think he sees himself as uh, a Russian czar back from the imperial days, that, that he has a divine right to lead Russia, and, and he's been gifted, and this is where he is, and, and Russia just needs to follow him no matter what. So I, I don't think he doesn't do that publicly, he, but that I, think is, I think that's how one, one of the ways to read him. The other way is I, I think he's 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 the godfather, uh, but he's not uh, an aging and feebled Vito Corleone. 
and he's not a rash and impulsive Sonny, and he's not an idiot like Fredo. He's a cold-blooded, calculated killer. He's Michael Corleone, or we might say Michal Corleone. And that combination of brute, ugly force, wanting power, wanting money, I don't think he has an ideological bone in his body. He believes he has a divine right to run Russia. And he and he and he's and he's a thug. And when you met, I, I think he doesn't get how dangerous this alliance with Iran is. But from his perspective, I think he's working on gathering all anti-American, all anti-Western forces in the world and trying to recreate. It's not going to be a Warsaw Pact. It's not going to be. But, it, but it's 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 a it's a it's an alliance of haters. Um of the United States, mainly the United States as being a unipolar, uh, you know, a country that's leading the world that he hates that. And so all that to say, Iran, if, if the United States hates Iran, then, then, then Iran should be a Russian ally. I think Iran is dragging Russia down, a very, Putin down a very dangerous path. And I'll say the one, one more thing about this, which is, it's amazing that Putin continues to try to keep a, uh, maintain a, a balance of relationship with Netanyahu in his day, even with with uh, Naftali Bennett, our new prime minister, and Yair Lapid, our new uh, foreign minister. Because you would think that a country that's that's arming and funding and providing political cover and providing nuclear scientists and all the rest to an Iranian regime that danger dangerous that wicked that. Why, why, does he, why is he sort of friendly with us? I think he's going to have to make a choice. And I think the Iranians are pushing Putin. Make a decision. Are you with us or are you with them? And I think that's a dangerous moment that's coming that Biden is accelerating because what happened in Afghanistan has caused the worst enemies of the United States and the West uh, to think, Maybe this is a moment to go get what we want. Iran is actively thinking about breaking out and going, just get the bomb. Let's just get it. Putin is actively thinking, maybe I should just take Ukraine or at least coerce them into doing what we want or bringing the government down or whatever. China's actively considering, should we just go get Taiwan? Who's going to stop us? The only people that seem quiet at the moment are North Korea. But I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not sanguine about that. But anyway, it's a dangerous moment. Bring Ruelan on this, uh, on particularly in Syria, because if you remember, when Putin decided to go into Syria, Obama said uh, to him, "Wise man that Obama considered himself to be, oh, watch out, Syria is a quagmire." And Putin thought, "For you, maybe not for me." And so he and he has been successful in Syria, propping up Assad, the dictator, getting himself a warm water port on the Mediterranean establishing other military uh, benefits that he wants in the Middle East and becoming a real power broker in the Middle East. Everybody understands that and and not taking any flack, particularly from, say, Amnesty International, really, or the UN Human Rights Council for the fact that 500,000 Syrians have been killed and millions have been displaced either internally or externally. That's nothing compared to the fact that uh, there may be uh, 
houses built uh, in the Jewish quarter of uh, of Jerusalem um, by Jews. That 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 that's what excites and and and, and angers Amnesty International and the UN. Um, so my, my my question is, especially with the U.S. Uh, under this administration and the previous administration, thinking, oh, how do we pivot out of the Middle East? Um, is it clear, Ruel, that uh, that 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 Putin becomes the major power broker in the Middle East, and is it, and is he more competitive with Iran or more cooperative? Well, I mean, I think it's clear already. He's the he's the primary outside foreign power because he's actually willing uh, to kill and to die. So you 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 don't get to be a, a player in the Middle East unless you're willing to engage in mock politique, and Putin uh, proved that definitively in Syria. So, and I think his his choice with Iran is it's intelligent. I, I don't see any problem with it. Uh, one, you got to always remember the Russians have killed more Muslims than any other European power. All right, they have an entirely different history and a different approach when it comes to dealing with Muslim powers. Uh, so, and they also don't really fear Islamic militancy. Uh, there's uh, Muslims have been living with Russians for a very long time. It's nothing new to them. Uh, so they don't view, if I were to borrow that, uh, I think ill-chosen word from Norman Podhoritz, they don't view this as World War III. So, uh, uh, I think the, the relationship they have, uh, with Iran, Putin, you know, does what he wants to do. And he, and then if he doesn't want to give the Iranians something, he doesn't. And the, the Iranians realize they don't have a big fallback there. The Iranians have no lost love for the Russians. They've dealt with them repeatedly since the revolution, and they have not found it a terribly pleasing experience. Uh, I will say that Khamenei in particular has a certain love of Russian literature. So uh, there may be a predisposition on his part uh, to uh, have some sympathy for at least the more the Russians who, who uh, you know, who, who speak the same argot, that is a very anti-American language, which the supreme leader instinctively gravitates towards. So uh, I think it's a win-win relationship. Uh, I don't I don't see I don't see any problem there. Uh, I, I, you know, the only issue uh, for the Russians is, you know, Probably, do they have to worry about the Chinese and the, and, and the Middle East? And I, I think the answer to that is probably no. I think you have an alliance here of authoritarian countries. I think it will expand because uh, the most of what uh, some might call allies in the Middle East, they're authoritarian states. So I think the over time, I think the gravitational pull of China will increase uh, substantially. Uh, so I think the Americans are going to have, the Americans have a lot of Trump cards, but since we're in a period of retrenchment and it's not going to stop, uh, I would have to say the Russians and the Chinese together, uh, are, it's looking decent. Uh, the primary problems, uh, for them are just the past where those things matter, all the ties that exist, military ties cultural ties, business ties that exist between, uh, you know, the Gulf states uh, and the Europe and the United States. But I think you can cohabit. I mean, uh, the, the, the Emiratis in particular, I mean, 
they are as Janus faced as they come. So I think they'll be able to, you know, associate with the Americans and the Europeans, take whatever they want, and they'll associate with the Russians and Chinese and take whatever they want. So uh, it's, it's again, I, I think the other side at the moment is in a better position. I have one more sort of odd question I want to ask, and then I'll give you both a chance to make any points you want to make that I failed to bring out through through my through my odd questions. And I guess I'll start with, with even so with you, Royal, on this about the Saudis. The Saudis rose to prominence in Arabia, rose to dominance in Arabia because they were a warrior tribe, fantastically successful fighters and warriors, and. Fed with British arms. And they were fine with British arms. Okay. So why are they today not fabulous warriors uh, fed with British arms or American arms or French arms or whatever? Are they kind of like the you know the Vikings who evolved into the pacifist Scandinavians? Is that is it is is that the, the route they followed? Well, I mean it's a you know it's a different time, different component parts of an identity have to come together to make you you know, successful on the battleground. Uh, I mean, no Middle Eastern power, with the possible exception of the Turks, uh, really has incorporated, you know, the Western juju when it comes to uh, modern warfare. So, uh, you know, the, the, the Saudi identity is still a thing in creation. And it's not really by any stretch of the imagination a modern society. So uh, it has a hard time. And you know, they're scared to death of the Iranians because the Iranians have incorporated these things better than they have. And I would say as a cosmically, you know, the, the Arabs really don't matter anymore. Uh, we have reverted. There they are increasingly an inconsequential people. We are reverting to where we were pre-World War I. Uh, and I would say that that was the case in the Middle East from the 10th century to World War I. And that there are really only two Muslim peoples who matter. And those, uh, broadly put, are the Turks and the Iranians. Uh, and the Arabs know it. I mean, they're the only Trump card they have, and I'm not sure they still even have that card, is religion. Uh, it is the only area where they have input that might be considered regional, if not global. Uh, and even there, I think it's uh, it's it's problematic for them. So uh, I, I I think the all the Arabs are in a great deal of, of trouble. They're all in a giant funk, uh, and they're trying to figure out what they can do. They know that they are con- the ones who are lucky enough to have oil are completely dependent upon that oil. So I don't see. Saudi Arabia recovering, there's no way in the world they're going to go one-on-one against the Iranians. Uh, That's a lost cause. Now, as long as the Americans uh, can stay in the Persian Gulf, as long as we have an air base and a naval base, we've effectively checked the Iranians. Uh, We withdraw those bases. uh, Then I think it becomes an open question of, you know, real imperial expansion. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see the Iranians take Bahrain. And there's nothing the Israelis can do to stop that. It's just way beyond their range. They don't have the military capacity to get involved. And I, I think, you know, the Saudis uh, certainly know that. So the real issue, again, is will Americans stay in the southern Middle East? As long as we stay in the southern Middle East, then uh, I think the Iranians are effectively checked. Uh, that's 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 the real question. It's the outside power. Are we willing to at least stay there? 
Joel, anything you want to talk about that I didn't ask you that uh, points you want to make on, on, on anything, really? Well, I, fascinating uh, <clears throat> analysis by Ruel. And I would say that uh, I'm trying to think how to formulate it. <clears throat> I think I have two major points. One, um, Iran cannot be checked it, territorially, yes, uh, as long as the United States stays there. But if Iran goes ahead and breaks out and gets the bomb and the United States does nothing, um, then then all the game has changed. Right. And I think that um, uh, this is a this is a real test of the Biden administration because Biden came, literally came into office saying he didn't want to deal with the Middle East. <laughs> he, he wants to he, want, he doesn't want to deal with it. He's like enough. Except on this Iran issue, but he looks desperate for a deal. And Iranians can smell desperation from half a world away. And, and I think they, that's why I think they actively are thinking, what do we need a deal for? Is Joe Biden going to go to war to stop us from breaking out and building a nuclear arsenal? I, I think the answer is most likely no, though the Iraqis thought... The answer was no when they thought, well, if we go into uh, Kuwait, is, is George H.W. Bush going to stop us? And their read was no. And then Bush rose to the occasion. I mean, could Biden do it? Yeah. But that would be pretty late in the game to let Iran start to break out. And then we have to do it. The United States could neutralize that in much better than the Israelis can. But so that's one side of that. But the other side of it, I would say, is I I. I believe that the Saudis are actively thinking about joining this Abraham Accords um, decision. I think uh, this movement, I think they, uh, I think this would be the one area of foreign policy I think Biden could actually show a success. And I think even if Biden doesn't want to help the Saudis and the Israelis come together, though he should, he absolutely should. And I think it's fruit that's ripening. I don't know if it's, I can't tell you if it's ripe yet, but I think it's ripening. And I think Biden actually has some leverage on human rights that he should continue to use, but he shouldn't abandon Saudi Arabia, in my view. And I think that if Biden doesn't want to get involved, I just wrote a piece for the Jerusalem Post the other day that said, listen, um, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, uh, the Saudis feel very vulnerable when it comes to missiles and drones. This would be a good moment to quietly offer to, you know, with Saudi money and Israeli technology, you could really build a much more impressive um, multi-layered defense system, not just for the Saudis, but for the Emiratis who are incredibly vulnerable. You know, why do they not? None of these guys want to go toe to toe because they've got oil refineries and cities that could just be leveled. Um, The same with the Bahrainis. You could actually build a, a regional architecture that was at least defensive. I think that would be an amazing way to move forward. I don't think it has to be a quid pro quo. But I think it's, but but I think the key to the Saudis on on Israel and and the Abraham Accords is they've got to figure the crown prince and the king, but most of the crown prince has to figure out a way to convince his people we should do this. I, I, my instinct is that he is. I mean, all the evidence suggests that's public. I, there's things I can't say, but I think it's clear that he's trending in this direction. But but how do you help that 30% say, no, I, that's actually, a, that's good for us, not good for, you know, the region or good for America or good for Israel. Or, you know, 
It's actually what we need in our national interest. And I, I that's one of the things I'm watching for very closely. And again, in the, in the near term before the Iranians break out, God forbid, Saudi money, Emirati money, Israeli technology, tourism, trade, that's, that is a game changer. And yes, the Chinese want in on that. Just don't have anything to play except brute force. The Chinese have money and they have technology. And so I, it, is, it, is a, it is not a good time for the United States to be, be rolling over. <laughs> but uh, it's interesting to live here. And I will say, uh, to maybe the one last point is, so I, I started these two websites, uh, All Israel News and All Arab News, uh, on September 1st, 2020. Mainly, we're focused on writing four and two evangelicals all over the world. Uh, there are 100 million and 60 million in the United States who love Israel, but also care about peace. Uh, but we're not all, you know, we're not, you know, not every article has a Bible story or, you know, it's a story about Jesus or whatever. It's, you know, it's real journalism. But, but I am so horrified by how hard it is to find good, honest uh, news and analysis, most of the analysis that uh, I launched this thing. And it's been interesting because we're watching all of these trends very closely. Uh, but I think most Americans aren't. Uh, most people in the world aren't. Evangelicals are watching closer than ever, closer than any. But even evangelicals are, are distracted right now. But good or bad, mostly that's bad. The, the, you, no matter, I start the book by saying, uh, what they say about Vegas, you can't say about the Middle East. You can't say what happens in the Middle East stays in the Middle East. You can, you can be Joe Biden and say, I, I don't want to deal with the Middle East. I want to deal with everything else. But the Middle East has a way uh, to, you know, I use the Godfather analogy. I'll use that to finish. You know, unfortunately, it's the worst one. But Godfather 3, you know, the more I try to leave, the more they pull me back in, right? I mean, we remember more the George Costanza. Oh, don't you think the movies were much better, except for the last one? Don't you think the movies? Movies were much better. Than oh my movies. gosh, the book was horrible. Actually, <laughs> terrible. terrible. Pornographic. The first, you know, but but the point. It's a weird story. No, actually, the pornographic part was okay. Ah. <laughs> okay, my evangelical sensibility is going to say not not in that, not that. But but the, 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 yeah, um, Mario Puzo was desperate. They wouldn't. They weren't going to publish any more of his books. Any any. And he aimed for the fences. And as a novelist, I think, wow, that was impressive. 10 million copies sold. But Francis Ford Coppola saw something in that book. And he basically excised all the uh, weird sexuality and went for that story. And the, the studio hated it, but he did a brilliant job. And look, I, I just think that um, you cannot look away from the Middle East for long. You can try, but it pulls you back in. And, and I... Uh, and I see that from a biblical perspective and historical perspective, and I have no doubt that that the future is going to force the world to look here at the epicenter of, of humanity. This has been a fascinating and certainly wide-ranging conversation. <laughs> so thank you, Ruel. Thank you, Joel. The book, uh, Your Most Recent Enemies and Allies, is a lot in it that we didn't get to discuss, so people should buy it and read it, as well as your other many books that are fun, that are really great, great, great fun. So thanks, and it's great to, great to talk to you again. It's been, it's been a while. Great to talk to you both. I really, really enjoyed it. Thank Pleasure. you. And listen, thanks to all of you who have been with us for this conversation. We value you. And by the way, we'd like to hear from you. 
You can compliment us. You can criticize us. That's just fine. Rate us, subscribe to us. Tell us if you want these conversations to be longer or shorter, or if you have other ideas. Again, we want you in this conversation as well. So I'm Cliff May, and I'm glad to be with all of you today and very soon again here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.